Good afternoon. Welcome to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be your host for the next hour. It's another lovely Chico afternoon. It is now summertime, so we can all be thankful that it's not triple digits, but it's been a very nice July so far. And I'm I'm working on uh, trying to... I, my main point of the show here is to educate and I try to entertain, but I also try to educate. And one of the interesting subjects that I've been learning about lately is the subject called fixed indexed annuities. And I actually went to an education seminar this morning and learned some more about some particular ones. But if you're not familiar with this, I just wanted to kind of discuss it a little bit today. There's a lot of advantages, and a lot of people, when they hear the word annuity, they immediately freak out because there are some annuities that are very risky and very expensive. They pay a lot of fees. They have lost a lot of money in the past. Some people have had very bad experiences with some of the annuities that are available. The worst of the bunch is usually the ones called the variable annuities. Now, they do well when the stock market does well, but they can go way down and people can actually lose their money. Over the years, the annuity world has evolved into a lot better place. There's a lot of different types, and there's one type that, in my opinion, stands out above the others, It's called an indexed annuity, and what I'm finding out is there's so many variations of this now that there's almost something for everyone in this this area. So just as a little bit of background to give you an idea of uh, the main thing is is, um, this is an insurance company product that you put a lump of money into. Now, this could be... This could be from your retirement money or it just could be money you have sitting in the bank. And one of the one of the advantages of these first of all is that the growth of this annuity is not taxed until you remove it. You even if it's not your retirement now remember your retirement money like you if you have an IRA or a 401k or a 403b or a 457 account Those are all called qualified money, and when you remove those, you will pay tax on it as ordinary income. But you can actually invest in an annuity with your non-qualified regular bank money, and the beauty of that is that until you take the money out, that income will not be taxed. And that's one of the main main features of any annuity, uh, most any annuity, but the indexed annuity is very interesting because depending on the company and depending on the plan, you can have the investment that you put in. Let's just start with a round number of $100,000 just to make the math simpler. You could invest $100,000 and it could be non-qualified money or it could be qualified money. If the market has a good year and let's say there's one of those years where the market in general goes up 15 or 20%, you will actually share in that growth depending on which index you pick to go along with. And some of these annuities don't even have what's called a cap. Some of them have a cap and they'll say, okay, we'll give you the S and P 500 increase this year on your money but if it's over 10%, we only give you 10%. That would be called a cap. Well, I'm learning now that there are some fixed income annuities, fixed indexed annuities, that you can choose an index that does not have a cap. And some of these can earn 20 to 30% per year in a good year. And you will share your 100000 that you put in will share in that amount at the end of the first year you're in it. And the beauty of these is this. Let's say you start with 100,000 and there's a 20% good year and you now have 120 at the end of the first year. The way these programs work 
you now will never go lower than the 120. Let's say that for the next 12-month period, the market goes down by 20%. Well, the beauty of a in fixed indexed annuity is that you will not decrease from the 120. You'll always have that amount. And then if the next year after that, the third year, let's say it goes up another 20%. Then after the end of your third year, you would get 20% on your 120. That would be 14.4. Uh, I'm sorry, that would be 24,000. 24, uh, so you would then have 144 in your account after the third year, and you didn't lose any in the down year. That's the real magic of these fixed index annuities that are very smart things for not all of your money. The other thing is when you say, okay, I'm getting the best of both worlds, I get to share in the market going up, but I get to protect myself when the market goes down, what's the catch? And the main catch is that you do have to leave this money in for a period of time without penalty. In other words, if you put this money in and six months later you decide you want it all back, you won't get it all back because they have a sliding payment schedule of a penalty for you. In other words, the catch is you need to leave this money in for a few years. That's why this is not designed for all of your money and it's not designed for your current checking account money. It's designed for that money that's sitting anyway before you retire or maybe you've got a target of maybe you're 55 years old right now and you plan on retiring at age 65. You could set yourself up in one of these fixed indexed annuities with a 10-year schedule and it would work out perfectly to where you would be totally free to utilize all that extra money that it's earned uh, upon your retirement at age 65. That would be an example. The other interesting feature of some of these uh, fixed indexed annuities that I'm learning about, they offer a 10% minimum for the first 10 years. So if you were to put the 100000 in, you would be guaranteed to make 10000 Now, they don't compound that they give you the 10% per year on the original investment. So after one year, you would have 110. After two years, you'd have 120, et cetera, et cetera. But in 10 years, you would have doubled your money because they've added 10, 10% increments to your investment. So there's some, I just wanted to bring this up. There's some real interesting things that the financial world has invented over the last 10 or 20 years that your parents and grandparents probably never heard about, and there's very good ways to protect yourself. My overriding concern is that the stock market virtually almost always has big, bad, negative years every so often. There's no way to predict exactly when. We had that big one in 08 and 09 where it lost about, I believe, 40 or more percent. It might have been 50 percent but it's steadily climbed up since then, the chances are there'll be another one of those big 40% down years. Now, if you have $100,000 sitting in the stock market, that could turn to 60000 in one of those bad down years. But if you protect your money with one of these uh, intelligent-style uh, annuities that have been designed, and like I say, again, it's not money that you need next month to pay off a balloon payment or not money you need to buy a new car with, you can protect yourself against the downside risk, but join and share in the upside potential. One of the main reasons that I've seen over the years of my clients who have lost money in their accounts, the main reason is the fear of missing out. The fear that if they pull their money out of the stock market right now, they'll miss another 10 or 20% up year, which lately seems to happen. Well, this year is not that way. It's getting, it's getting what they call a little toppy right now in the stock market. But the main reason people lose money in these markets is the fear of missing out. They're afraid that if they take their money out of the market exposure, that 
they will miss out on the next big run up. And that's that's why there are things like these indexed annuities which can actually give you the rewards of the upside years but take away the risk of the downside years. And like I say, the catch, the catch is that this is money that needs to be uh, in for a, a decent period of time. It's not meant... Uh, it's not meant to be money that you have to get to within the next year or two. It's You're definitely going to be putting it in for at le- least a, f- a few years. But when you're investing for the long term, you want to do that anyway. I mean, you would normally want to do that. So another article I thought would be interesting for you today, and I'm glad you have time to spend with me. It's been a very busy week for me. I'm My day job is the little CPA office on Mangrove, and I'm staying very busy with extension season and the business returns are all, the ones on extension are due in September, the individuals are due in October. Uh, There's always businesses with fiscal years that are due at random times during the year. And this is really, between now and September is really the busy time where I got to make sure I get everything lined up, I get all the information I need, make sure I'm not waiting for anything. And uh, it's just a, it's a nice time of year. It's not, it's not really super busy like March and April, but it's busy enough to where I keep things rolling and uh, always have something to do. And like I say, I'm, I'm always happy when I'm busy because that means business is good. And I wouldn't want the alternative that would not be pleasant to wonder where your next customer's coming from. That's uh, that would be hard to take, and in the tax, in the tax business, that's one thing you don't really need to worry about because if you do a good job, there's a lot of repeat customers every year because everybody usually needs the same work done each year. So it's a it's a great business if you're into customer service because if you take good care of people, they will come back. Uh, they'll come back next year, and that's really the secret to to that kind of business. So I wanted to share an interesting article that you've probably heard something about. I mean, at some point you've heard something about this theory, but since I'd like to share some uh, Course in Miracles things and some Eckhart Tolle things with you, usually every week I share something from those books. I found a real interesting article on my news website that I've mentioned to you before, the zerohedge.com that I read every day just to kind of keep up on my uh, on my keep up on my news. And one item of news that I thought was interesting and it has directly to do with my other my other uh, interests which I always bring up on business buzz is the whole idea of you having some money insurance and owning some physical gold. So I thought I'd read a little bit of this article. It says, Poland joins Hungary with huge gold purchase and repatriation. If you don't know what repatriation means, it's a trend that started about 10 years ago when Hugo Chavez of Venezuela told the bankers in London and New York that he wanted Venezuelans physical gold that they're holding for him sent back to the Central Bank of Venezuela to hold themselves. That's called repatriation. Since then, there's been a lot of countries that have asked for repatriation of their physical gold. The worry is that if the time comes and there's a crunch and everybody's looking for that physical gold that they think they own, they're are so many claims to each ounce. Each ounce of physical gold sitting in these New York and London banks is probably claimed by 10, 20, 30, maybe even hundreds of owners. It'll be like musical chairs. When everybody wants the actual physical bar, there's going to turn out to be 50 or 100 owners for each bar, and it's not going to go well. So these countries, and Venezuela is the one I remember starting it, are repatriating their gold. In other words, they're not trusting New York and London anymore to hold their gold. So uh, after we come up on this first break, I'm going to share a little story about Eastern Europe and what they've been doing lately. 
Now, maybe they've been listening to Business Buzz because they're doing exactly what I've been recommending you do. And it's a very interesting article that's only, uh, it only actually came out uh, yesterday. So it's very new. So I will share that article with you right after the break. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. I'll be right back. This is Pause to Pray, a moment to stop down from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today, we pray for Kelly McKeague, Director of the Prisoner of War and Missing in Action Accounting Agency. Mr. McKeague oversees the global efforts to account for our missing military personnel from past conflicts. Galatians 6.9 reminds us of the importance of doing good and noble work. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Right now, with this in mind, let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask for your guidance for Mr. McKeague as he works on behalf of our nation's POW and MIA personnel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pause to Pray is a service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team, a nonprofit, nonpartisan ministry dedicated to encouraging prayer for our nation's leaders. To learn more, go to pausetopray.org. This message reaches a million people or more every week. Spreading the gospel is more than one voice speaking to a million. It is and must continue to be a million voices, each speaking to one, pointing them to our friend Jesus. The Lutheran Hour with Dr. Michael Ziegler. The Lutheran Hour, Saturday and Sunday at 1.30, here on KKXX. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Thank you for spending part of your afternoon with me. I was beginning to read a little bit from an article called Poland Joins Hungary with Huge Gold Purchase and Repatriation. And this is submitted by Ronan Manley from BullionStar.com. And it's dated, uh, oh, just yesterday. That's good. It says, with a variety of the world's central banks going on a gold-buying spree in recent years, such as Russia and China, there has unsurprisingly been no shortage of news flow in this area for the world's financial media to comment on. But even in such an environment of abundant sovereign gold purchases, a number of buying bombshells have stood out, stood out for their intensity and shock and awe abruptness, particularly from nations which, on the surface, might seem like unlikely gold buyers. One of these is the announcement last October by Hungary's central bank that after 32 years of holding unchanged gold reserves, it had rapidly increased its monetary gold holdings by 1,000% or tenfold from 3.1 tons to 31.5 tons and also repatriated, brought home, this entire holding from London to Budapest away from the clutches of the Bank of England. At the time we asked, with almost all of Poland's gold held at the Bank of England, a relevant question now is how long before Poland also sees fit to repatriate its gold in physical form away from the fractionally backed LBMA-controlled Gold Trading Center of London. The answer to this question was not long at all. For to the Hungarian bombshell, we can now add Hungary's neighbor, and closest political ally, Poland, which has just in its own way shocked the gold market and the European Union by announcing that during the first half of 2019, it has already bought 100 tons of monetary gold at the Bank of England, bringing its gold reserve to 228 tons, all stored at the Bank of England, and now plans to repatriate almost half of its strategic gold reserves, or at least 100 tons, back to the National Bank of Poland, vaults in Warsaw. The National Bank of Poland revealed the news about its gold on Friday the 5th of July in a short official release. 
And the announcement is worth noting for many reasons. And then they go on to talk about what they bought. Now, the interesting thing is, the interesting thing is they're only asking for half of it back. And so that, that probably, that probably would make you wonder. So I'm going to read the down toward the bottom of this article. It says an issue of trust gold inspection before repatriation. Very interestingly, the Polish central bank said the bank employees inspected the Polish gold and its storage arrangements at the Bank of England in June of this year. Whether this was an official gold audit or a walk-around glance of some gold bars in one of the vaults is unclear. However, the visit by the Poles to London last month does indicate that whatever gold accumulation the Polish bank had planned this year is probably done for now. It also prepares the Polish bank for the last and most critical part of its plan, which according to its press release is to withdraw a significant quantity of this gold at least 100 tons back to Poland and away from the risks of holding it at the Bank of England. Although the official language in the press release is diplomatic, the Polish bank makes it clear that there is real risk to holding its gold in London, something, was, something that was also clear in the repatriation decisions of central bank such as Hungary and Austria and perhaps crystallized by the Bank of England's brazen confiscation of Venezuela's gold in London last year. So I just wanted to share that with you. There's uh, people all around the world, uh, governments all around the world, that are very concerned that whatever gold they supposedly bought might not belong to them when push comes to shove, and that's why they're doing this thing called repatriating, and a lot of countries have done it. Uh, Germany did it. I remember when they asked for something like 700 tons of gold to be brought back from New York to Germany. I remember they were told, oh, it's going to take us about five years to get it to you. That is the catch. Every ounce of gold sitting in one of these New York and London banks probably has an ownership title to 100 different owners, and only the, only the ones who get it out now are going to end up actually holding the physical gold that they think they own. And that is the danger. That is the danger of letting your broker buy uh, paper gold, which would be like these, they're called uh, ETFs, electronically traded funds. One's called GLD for gold. One's called SLV for silver. That's paper gold. That's not real gold. And if you read the fine print on those contracts, they don't have to send you any gold. They can just send you the cash value of gold, which is sort of a good tip-off as to why the cash value of gold keeps keeps getting hammered down so low. It's actually back under $1,400 again, so anyone who's been waiting for a time to jump in and buy a, buy a half ounce or an ounce of gold, you might want to think about it right now because they've hammered it back down under 1400 for now. So the other interesting Zero Hedge article I wanted to share this week, it's kind of a combination because it's from this website that's usually got business articles that I enjoy. It's a little bit closer to my Course in Miracles discussion in this article than it would be to a, to a business page article. So that's why I wanted to share this one. It's from uh, yesterday also, and it says, Matrix-like reality goes mainstream. NBC asks... Are we living in a simulated universe? So it starts off, uh, this is from NBC News. What if everything around us, the people, the stars overhead, the ground beneath our feet, even our bodies and minds, were an elaborate illusion? You'll remember if you've been listening to my show and I've read you a little bit of Course in Miracles in the last segment. The last segment of each week I usually try to do some of that. This is exactly what they're talking about. What if our world were simply a hyper-realistic simulation with all of us merely characters in some kind of sophisticated video game? This, of course, is a familiar concept from science fiction books and films, including the 1999 blockbuster movie The Matrix. But some physicists and philosophers say it's possible that we really do live in a simulation, even if that means casting aside what we know or think we know about the universe 
and our place in it. This is a quote. If we are living in a simulation, then the cosmos that we are observing is just a tiny piece of the totality of physical existence, Oxford philosopher Nick Bostrom said in a 2003 paper that jump-started the conversation about what has come to be known as the simulation hypothesis. While the world we see is in some sense real, it is not located at the fundamental level of reality. Rizvan Zvirk, V-I-R-K, founder of the Massachusetts Institution, Institute of Technology's Play Labs program and author of The Simulation Hypothesis, is among those who take the simulation hypothesis seriously. He recalls playing a virtual reality game so realistic that he forgot that he was in an empty room with a headset on. That led him to wonder, are we sure we aren't embedded within a world created by beings more technologically savvy than ourselves? That question makes sense to Rick Rich Terrell, a computer scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. And I'll just interject here, these aren't these aren't crazy people talking. These are actual pretty smart scientist types. Detailed as they are, today's best simulations don't involve involve artificial minds, but Terrell thinks the ability to model sentient beings could soon be within our grasp. We were within a generation of being those gods who create those universes, he says. Not everyone is convinced. During a 2016 debate at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, Harvard University physicist Lisa Randall said the odds that the simulation hypothesis correct are, quote, effectively zero. For starters, there's no evidence that our world isn't the array of stars and galaxies that it appears to be. And she wonders why advanced beings would bother to simulate Homo sapiens. Why simulate us? I mean, there are so many things to be simulating, she said. I don't know why this higher species would want to bother with us. Yet there's a familiar ring to the idea that there's a simulator or creator who does care about us. Similarly, the idea of a superior being forging a simulated universe parallels the notion of a deity creating the world. For example, as described in the book of Genesis. Well, we're coming up on that bottom of the hour break. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. This isn't a whole lot about business buzz, but it sure is fun to read. I'll be right back. Next time on Adventures in Odyssey. Oh, hi, Mr. Whitaker. Well, how are things at the Jacobs household on the big day? Big day? Oh, you mean Melanie. Uh Uh-huh. Melanie Jacobs is convinced that she knows the exact day and time of the return of Jesus. Does she? We do have faith. No, Dad. You all have to believe. Henry Fermig figured it all out. You should read the book. Find out on the next Adventure in Odyssey. Two Nicks? That's right, double Nicks. Nick Guy, Private Eye, and Mr. Nick of We Kids. Must be true. Saturday mornings between 9 and 10 here on KK Nick Snacks. Tune in weekdays at 7.30 for Focus on the Family, here on KKXX. I can do this. We believe in you. Each day brings hope. Every day, millions of people celebrate their recovery from addiction and mental illness while others begin their journey. Be a part of it. Share your strength, support, and hope. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. I spend a lot of time in the backyard and I'm the center of attention at summer barbecues. In 96, I made some of the tastiest s'mores. And at 09, it was me, your backyard fire pit, that accidentally started a wildfire when a summer breeze carried one of my embers into some dry brush. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com, brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires.
Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I was reading this very interesting article. And of course, there's a lot of a lot of speculation in this thing, but I just thought it was I thought it was interesting and worth sharing. And uh, I'm just going to read a little bit more. It says some thinkers, including Tyrrell, welcome the analogy to religion. If the simulation hypothesis is correct, he says, then there's a creator, an architect, someone who designed the world. It's an ancient idea recast in terms of mathematics and science rather than just faith. So you can read more of that. It's the article's called uh, Matrix-like Reality Goes Mainstream. And you can find it on zerohedge.com. I thought it was I thought it was interesting enough to share with you and it fits in pretty well with my Course in Miracles reading because that does say that the basis of the course is that we're actually at home in God, but we think we're somewhere else. And that's kind of the basis of that book. And as long as you, um, you know, as long as you keep it, what it, what it says, it talks about level confusion. Obviously, on the level of the world here where we live and breathe and drive and eat and work and pay taxes and all that, on that level, that that theory would be nonsense. But on the level above the level we think we're in, it may be, it may be the case. So, that's sort of where that simulation thing kind of made me think about the course when I saw that. So the other article I wanted to share a little bit about today is uh, another one by uh, Egon von Greyers, and his website is called goldswitzerland.com, and he... Uh, the title of this is the road to eighteen thousand dollar one hundred and the road to eighteen thousand one hundred and sixty dollar gold and the wisdom of Jesse Livermore. And I don't know if you guys know who Jesse Livermore is, but he's a very famous author who uh, wrote all about uh, stock market stock market happenings. I believe he wrote them in like the nineteen twenties, and he's very. Uh, He's very honored in the stock market, stock picker world. So I'm going to read this article by uh, Egon von Greyers, The Wisdom of Jesse Livermore. Lemmings have a herd mentality, but following the crowd can have grave consequences like falling off a cliff and drowning in the ocean. Many investors have the same instinct. They follow the crowd and buy or sell when other people do. This probably won't end in the same disaster as for the lemmings, but following the crowd virtually never leads to a successful long-term investment performance. The biggest investment profits are normally made by investing long-term, but the key is to buy when an investment is undervalued and unloved. That reduces the risk substantially and thus the potential return. Extremely important when investing is to be patient and wait for the right opportunity. As Jesse Livermore said, it was never my thinking that made the big money for me. It was my sitting. And then uh, Egon von Greyers continues, I have probably been following the gold market for longer than most people still being active today. When gold went from $35 in 1971 to $850 in 1980, I owned only a little physical gold. I also owned some Australian mining stocks since the bank where I worked in Geneva was advised at the time by Adolf London. Adolf was a legendary Swedish resource investor who lived in Geneva. Sadly, he died too early in 2006, but his sons have continued to expand the London Group to one of the most successful businesses in the resource sector in the world. So back in 1969, I made my first investment in mining stocks based on Adolf London, and that's spelled L-U-N-D-I-N, based on Adolf London's recommendations. I remember Adolf phoning in the middle of the night in Europe from Australia with the latest hot tip. At the time, there was a boom in mining stocks. The most infamous company was nickel miner called Poseidon, which rose dramatically and later collapsed. Then when Nixon closed the gold window in August 1971, a spectacular bull market in precious metals started and a bear market in paper money, which lasted until January 1980. 
After the 1980 peak as gold and the gold mining stocks started falling, I was involved in corporate life and stopped following the resource sector. But then in the 1990s, I started analyzing global financial and economic risk and came to the conclusion that the world economy at some point would have very serious problems. At the time, I considered that the two most likely areas that would cause this were derivatives and debt. I was looking at how best to protect against these risks, and gold was the obvious solution, but gold at the time was totally out of fashion, and central banks around the world had been reducing their holdings. From the January 1980 high of 850, gold crashed to just over $300 in 1982. Thereafter, gold traded between 300 and 500. Central bank selling pushed gold down to a bottom in 1999 at 250. Finally, at the end of 2001, gold seemed to have stabilized around the $300 pivot point. We then decided that risks seemed right, with gold totally unloved and undervalued. So we decided to make physical gold our primary investment in early 2002, when the price was around $300. At the time, we were based in the UK. So when we entered our physical gold investment in 2002, I had certainly been sitting for a very long time. Gold started the current bull market in 1971 at $35, made a temporary top in 1980 at $850, and then spent 20 years correcting. But the gold bull certainly hadn't finished. Central banks saw to that. They continued their irresponsible monetary policy, leading to a chronic credit expansion, debasement of currencies, and thereby permanently underwriting the gold price. Looking at gold on an inflation-adjusted basis, 2000 was the lowest point since 1971 when the price was $35 per ounce. And then he shows a chart below. Adjusted for real inflation shows this amazing insurance can be bought today at an all-time historical low. Gold price currently at 1400 is cheaper than in 2000 at 280 Cheaper than in 1970 was gold was $35 or in 1780 when Gold was traded in London at four pounds per ounce. What the above chart also chart also shows is that the peak price for gold in 1980 at 850 today would be eighteen thousand one hundred and sixty dollars adjusted for inflation. There is no reason why gold won't reach that level in the next few years, especially as the gold paper market implodes. Since we bought gold in 2002, we have been sitting. We didn't buy gold for speculation, and we didn't buy gold for participating in a price move. Instead, we bought gold for long-term capital appreciation in real terms and, most importantly, for wealth preservation purposes against an extremely precarious world economy and financial system. Once we owned the best insurance you can buy, our intention was to keep this cover indefinitely. It is the best-kept secret in the world that you can buy an investment with the following attributes. 1. The best insurance against financial and economic risk. 2. The ultimate wealth preservation asset. 3. Holds its value in real terms through the ages. 4. Has a stable intrinsic value. 5. Is totally liquid. 6. Is a medium of exchange and the only money that has survived in history. 7. Has no liability or debt attached to it. and 8. Has a high potential of substantial capital appreciation. It is the opportunity of a lifetime to acquire insurance that is also a superb investment or an investment which is also the ultimate insurance, and all this at the lowest price ever in real terms. So the other interesting thing in this article, I recommend you look up this article. It was on uh, it's, it's on goldswitzerland.com, the road to $18,160 gold. What's really interesting is he posts in this article what's called the inverted pyramid. And what it is is that it lists investments from the top down going toward a point, and the most unstable are toward the top, and the most stable end up toward the bottom. So I'm just going to read how this inverted pyramid goes. At the top is small business. Next is real estate. Next is diamonds and gemstones. Next is over-the-counter stocks. Next is commodities. Next is municipal bonds. Then is corporate bonds. Then is listed stocks. Then is government bonds. Then U.S. Treasury bills. Then Federal Reserve notes, paper money. And at the very bottom of the inverted pyramid is gold. So I've, I've seen that pyramid before, and it's, it's an interesting one. 
So I just always want to reiterate that uh, part of your money, when they print, uh, when trillions and trillions of dollars of debt are kind of floating around, it's a good idea to at least have some form of money insurance, which would be some physical gold just to make sure that uh, if the if the currency drops in value, you will be covered by owning part of your currency in a different currency. And really physical gold is just a different currency that is available to you for part of your, for part of your holdings. And that's just my, that's just my take on things. So for the last segment, uh, I think we're going to, we're going to have a little fun. We're going to get into a little uh, peace of mind activity. We're going to actually read about something that you'll probably, it'll probably ring a bell with you, I think, for when you, uh, when I read you this thing, I think you'll, I think you'll understand. So the other thing is, I hope you all have taken care of your 2018 income tax preparation. If you haven't, if you're on an extension or if you forgot to do an extension, you can always call my office. I'm, I'm doing extension returns all through the summer. Uh, I'm at 895-3353. I offer a free initial consultation. If you haven't yet done your 2018 taxes, you could call me and we could discuss your situation. You never know. I might think of something that no one else had mentioned to you before. And it's a free initial consultation, so it doesn't cost you a dime to give it a try. So I'll be right back for the fourth segment. We're going to get into some peace of mind, and I'm going to see if you can relate to this next topic I'm going to talk about. So stay tuned to Business Buzz. I'll be right back. A sweet testimony to the Creator. This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. Next time you see a honeybee, think of this. These hardworking insects use the most efficient shape possible to store their honey. They know how to keep their hive at just the right temperature. And they have leg hairs with the perfect electrostatic charge to transfer pollen. And that's not all. Bees dance to tell other bees about a food source. Their figure eight dance tells others the exact angle they need to fly relative to the sun to find food. And since the sun changes position, they even know how to compensate for that in their dance. You see, these creatures didn't evolve. They show off their mighty creator God. Evidence that God created the world and that the Bible's history is true is all around us. Discover more on our website at AnswersRadio.com. The website to check out is AnswersRadio.com. When we air a program, first the sound reaches the 35 major and minor parts of the human ear. (laughs) Then the message travels out from the ear across millions of auditory nerves. From there it reaches about 10 billion neurons in your brain. Finally, the message and the teaching reaches your soul. Right here, you'll find speakers and teachers that go way beyond just being educational or entertaining. Because you are more than just flesh and bone and nerves and neurons. We are programs that reach the soul. You are locked into Life Radio, KKXX, AM and FM. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. It's one of those afternoons where I think a perfect situation would be just kind of relaxing and closing your eyes and just drift away. But don't do that if you're driving, of course. But it's just the way I feel today. I'm, I got up early today and I played tennis as uh, my favorite form of exercise and that was a lot of fun. But I did get up early, so... It's just been sort of a long, long day, but I'm glad you're here able to spend a little time with me. Now, I'm going to see if 
if you can relate to this, because this, I, th- I think this is fairly common, but I'm going to read one of the more helpful, from one of the more helpful books. And the book is called A New Earth, Awakening to Your Life's Purpose. And it's written by Eckhart Tolle. And I'm starting with a chapter that begins in my edition on page 61. It's in a chapter called The Core of Ego, and this section that I'm going to start with is called Complaining and Resentment. Now, when I, when you listen to this passage from this book, let me know if you can relate to this or maybe you know someone that would relate to this and see if this doesn't make a lot of sense and see if there isn't some solution here when you listen to this. Complaining is one of the ego's favorite strategies for strengthening strengthening itself. Every complaint is a little story the mind makes up that you completely believe in. Whether you complain aloud or only in thoughts makes no difference. Some egos that perhaps don't have much else to identify with easily survive on complaining alone. When you are in the grip of such an ego, complaining, especially about other people, is habitual and, of course, unconscious, which means you don't know what you are doing. Applying negative mental labels to people either to their face or more commonly when you speak about them to others or even just think about them, is often part of this pattern. Name-calling is the crudest form of such labeling and of the ego's need to be right and triumph over others. Jerk, etc., etc., all definitive pronouncements that you can't argue with. On the next level down, on the scale of unconsciousness, you have shouting and screaming and not much below that, physical violence. Resentment is the emotion that goes with complaining and the mental labeling of people and adds even more energy to the ego. Resentment means to feel bitter, indignant, aggrieved, or offended. You resent other people's greed, their dishonesty, their lack of integrity, what they are doing, what they did in the past, what they said, what they failed to do, what they should or shouldn't have done. The ego loves it. Instead of overlooking unconsciousness in others, you make it into their identity. Who is doing that? The unconsciousness in you, the ego. Sometimes the fault that you perceive in another isn't even there. It is a total misinterpretation, a projection by a mind conditioned to see enemies and to make itself right or superior. At other times, the fault may be there, but by focusing on it, sometimes to the exclusion of everything else, you amplify it. And what you react to in another, you strengthen in yourself. Non-reaction to the ego in others is one of the most effective ways not only of going beyond ego in yourself, but also of dissolving the collective human ego. But you can only be in a state of non-reaction if you can recognize someone's behavior as coming from the ego, as being an expression of the collective human dysfunction. When you realize it's not personal, there is no longer a compulsion to react as if it were. By not reacting to the ego, you will often be able to bring out the sanity in others, which is the unconditioned consciousness as opposed to the conditioned. At times, you may have to take practical steps to protect yourself from deeply unconscious people. This you can do without making them into enemies. Your greatest protection, however, is being conscious. Somebody becomes an enemy if you personalize the unconsciousness that is the ego. Non-reaction is not weakness but strength. Another word for non-reaction is forgiveness. To forgive is to overlook, or rather, to look through. You look through the ego to the sanity that is in every human being as his or her essence. The ego loves to complain and feel resentful, not only about other people, but also about situations. What you can do to a person, you can also do to a situation. Make it into an enemy. The implication is always, this should not be happening. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be doing this. I'm being treated unfairly. And the ego's greatest enemy of all is, of course, the present moment, which is to say life itself. Complaining is not to be confused with informing someone of a mistake or deficiency so that it can be put right. And to refrain from complaining doesn't necessarily mean putting up with bad quality or behavior. There is no ego in telling the waiter that your soup is cold and needs to be heated up if you stick to the facts, which are always neutral. How dare you serve me cold soup? That's complaining. There is a me here that loves to feel personally offended by the cold soup and is going to make the most of it. 
a me that enjoys making someone wrong. The complaining we are talking about is in the service of the ego, not of change. Sometimes it becomes obvious that the ego doesn't really want change so that it can go on complaining. See if you can catch, that is to say notice, the voice in your head, perhaps in the very moment it complains about something, and to recognize it for what it is, the voice of the ego, no more than a conditioned mind pattern, a thought. Whenever you notice that voice, you will also realize that you are not the voice, but the one who is aware of it. In fact, you are the awareness that is aware of the voice. In the background, there is the awareness. In the foreground, there is the voice, the thinker. In this way, you are becoming free of the ego, free of the unobserved mind. The moment you become aware of the ego in you, it is strictly speaking no longer the ego, but just an old conditioned mind pattern. Ego implies unawareness. Awareness and ego cannot coexist. The old mind pattern or mental habit may still survive and reoccur for a while, because it has the momentum of thousands of years of collective human unconsciousness behind it. But every time it is recognized, it is weakened. Whereas resentment is often the emotion that goes with complaining, it may also be accompanied by a stronger emotion such as anger or some other form of upset. And I, just as an aside, I, whenever I read these kind of passages, I, I really do see it in myself and, and people I know. And that's why... That's why it's so good to do these exercises to try to step back and observe these things instead of letting them kind of control your, your daily life. In, the, in this way, it becomes more highly charged energetically. Complaining then turns into reactivity, another of the ego's ways of strengthening, strengthening itself. There are many people who are always waiting for the next thing to react against, to feel annoyed or disturbed about, and it never takes long before they find it. This is an outrage, they say. How dare you? I resent this. They are addicted to upset and anger as others are to a drug. Through reacting against this or what they assert and strengthen their feeling that they assert and strengthen their feeling of self. A long-standing resentment is called a grievance. To carry a grievance is to be in a permanent state of against, and that is why grievances constitute a significant part of many people's ego. Collective grievances can survive for centuries in the psyche of a nation or tribe and fuel a never-ending cycle of violence. A grievance is a strong negative emotion connected to an event in the sometimes distant past that is being kept alive by compulsive thinking, by retelling the story in the head or out loud of what someone did to me or what someone did to us. A grievance will also contaminate other areas of your life. For example, while you think about and feel your grievance, its negative emotional energy can distort your perception of an event that is happening in the present or influence the way in which you speak or behave towards someone in the present. One strong grievance is enough to contaminate large areas of your life and keep you in the grip of the ego. It requires honesty to see whether you still harbor grievances, whether there is someone in your life you have not completely forgiven an enemy. If you do, become aware of the grievance both on the level of thought as well as emotion. That is to say, be aware of the thoughts that keep it alive and feel the emotion that is the body's response to those thoughts. Don't try to let go of the grievance. Trying to let go to, to forgive does not work. Forgiveness happens naturally when you see that it has no purpose other than to strengthen a false sense of self, to keep the ego in place. The seeing is freeing The seeing is freeing. Jesus' teaching to forgive your enemies is essentially about the undoing of one of the main egoic structures in the human mind. The past has no power to stop you from being present now. Only your grievance about the past can do that. And what is a grievance? The baggage of old thought and emotion. The next uh, next, uh, topic here, a little subheading, is being right, making wrong. Complaining as well as fault-finding and reactivity strengthen the ego's sense of boundary and separateness on which its survival depends. But they also strengthen the ego in another way by giving it a feeling of superiority on which it thrives. It may not be immediately apparent how complaining, say, about a traffic jam, about politicians, about the greedy wealthy or the lazy unemployed, or your colleagues or ex-spouse, men or women, 
can give you a sense of superiority. Here is why. When you complain, by implication, you are right and the person or situation you complain about or react against is wrong. There is nothing that strengthens the ego more than being right. Being right is identification with a mental position, perspective, an opinion, a judgment, a story. For you to be right, of course, you need someone else to be wrong. And so the ego loves to make wrong in order to be right. In other words, you need to make others wrong in order to get a stronger sense of who you are. Not only a person, but also a situation can be made wrong through complaining and reactivity, which always implies that this should not be happening. Being right places you in a position of imagined moral superiority in relation to the person or situation that is being judged and found wanting. It is that sense of superiority the ego craves and through which it enhances itself. Facts undoubtedly exist. If you say light travels faster than sound and someone says the opposite is the case, you are obviously right and he is wrong. The simple observation that lightning precedes thunder could confirm this. So not only are you right, but you know you are right. Is there any ego involved in this? Possibly, but not necessarily. If you are simply stating what you know to be true, the ego is not involved at all because there is no identification. Identification with what? With mind and a mental position. Such identification, however, can easily creep in. If you find yourself saying, believe me, I know, or why do you never believe me, then the ego has already crept in. It is hiding in the little word me. A simple statement, light is faster than sound, although true, is now in the service of illusion of ego. It has become contaminated with a false sense of I. It has become personalized, turned into a mental position. The I feels diminished or offended because somebody doesn't believe what I said. Ego takes everything personally. Emotion arises, defensiveness, perhaps even aggression. Are you defending the truth? No, the truth in any case needs no defense. The light or sound does not care about what you or anybody else thinks. You are defending yourself, or rather the illusion of yourself, the mind-made substitute. It would be even more accurate to say that the illusion is defending itself. If even the simple and straightforward realm of facts can lend itself to egoic distortion and illusion, how much more so the less tangible realm of opinions, viewpoints, and judgments, all of them thought forms that can easily be infused with the sense of I. Every ego confuses opinions and viewpoints with facts. Furthermore, it cannot tell the difference between an event and its reaction to that event. Every ego is a master of selective perception and distorted interpretation. Only through awareness, not through thinking, can you differentiate between fact and opinion. Only through awareness are you able to see. There is the situation and here is there is the situation and here is the anger I feel about it, and then realize there are other ways of approaching the situation other ways of seeing it and dealing with it. Only through awareness can you see the totality of the situation or person instead of adapting one limited perspective. So I wanted to share that because I think everybody can see a little bit of themselves in those in that short part of a chapter of A New Earth. I feel one of the best exercises you can do, try to go... Just start with maybe 10 minutes to start and build yourself up, kind of like an exercise program. Try to go 10 minutes without forming an opinion or giving a giving an opinion or judging anything. Just try it for 10 minutes. That's a real good way to get kind of rolling on this whole idea of non-reactivity. What good does it do to complain about something? In the long run, it really doesn't help at all. Try doing no reaction, no opinion. Just try it for 10 minutes at a time and see how you feel if you can go that way. It does tend to bring you a little bit of peace of mind, which is really what more could you ask. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Thanks for listening to Business Buzz. I'll be back next time. See you then. This is John Fuller inviting you to tune in weekday mornings at 7.30 for Focus on the Family with Jim Daly, right here on Life Radio KKXX.
KKXX, Paradise, K280GL, Chico, and K283AR. This hour from townhall.com, I'm Keith Peters. Britain's foreign secretary says Iranian authorities have seized two vessels in the Strait of Hormuz today, intensifying tensions in the strategic waterway. One of the ships is British, the other sails under Liberia's flag. And Britain's foreign secretary, Jeremy Hunt, called the seizure unacceptable. Iran confirmed that it seized a British oil tanker in the Strait of Hormuz because it was not complying with international maritime laws 